Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a discussion with Congresswoman Karen Bass. The California Congresswoman has been a member of the U.S. House of Representatives since 2010. In 2019, she was the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. The following year, along with Senator Cory Booker, she led the way in pushing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act through the House of Representatives. In September of 2021, she announced her candidacy for the mayor of Los Angeles. I will tell you that this was not an easy decision for me because it's not as though I was tired of Congress and and ready to uh, leave. But truly, Los Angeles is experiencing a public health and a public safety emergency. And I think for far too long, it was not treated that way. And now it's really exploded. And what I am referring to is the fact that two years ago, Los Angeles had 40,000 people living in tents all around the city. I know that number is even larger now, but because of COVID, the count was not done for two years. So any day now we will be hearing the new count. I will not be surprised at all if it's more than 50,000 people, if you can imagine that. I mean, that's the size of a a small county. And uh, the idea that that many people are living on the street and dying every day. And in 2020, again, the last time the count was done, 1,500 people died on the streets in Los Angeles. And Los Angeles, uh, this will be a surprise to many, the Black population in Los Angeles is only 9%. That's 9% out of 4 million people. But 40% of the people who are unhoused are African-American. 30% are Latino. The Latino population in LA is 49%. So what that means is 70% of the people living outside are Black or brown. And because people are, are dying on a daily basis, to me, uh, this really is a public health emergency. That's what drew me uh, to decide not to run for Congress again. I'm also worried that the mood in L.A., in some parts of L.A., people are exasperated. They're tired of it. They don't want to see this anymore. And that is a combination that can be very deadly. Because that means that, you know, there's a segment of our city that is so frustrated, they don't believe the problem is going to be solved. So they just want it to go away. And we know what that means. Do you you think this is a microcosm of what is seen in other cities? There are inherent problems to particular cities, but that exasperation, I think, is echoed in many cities across the country. Well, it is, but it, it is a departure from Los Angeles because Los Angeles is a very liberal city. And you even have liberal uh, folks who are just saying, look, just get it out of my way. And uh, and that, I think, is a recipe for very bad policies. It also is an opening 
for candidates to come in and exploit the fear, exploit the the cynicism and run a campaign that, you know, goes down the road of law and order. And we know who is hurt by those type of campaigns. One of the things, and we'll be getting into your plan in a moment that you have concentrated on is the idea of reforming criminal justice and police reform. Um, That is something that you have not just jumped into. This has been a thread throughout your public service career. Um, What was it that made you in the early days uh, see this in a way that others didn't? (laughs) I don't think I had a choice. (laughs) Uh, You know, as a young activist in Los Angeles, uh, you experience police harassment and police abuse. Uh, There was a special unit in Los Angeles Police Department that their job was essentially to harass activists. So this was an issue that was brought to me, not that I not that I sought out. Uh, and and it's changed. I mean, uh, you know, over 100 of us were involved in a massive lawsuit in the in the late 70s, early 80s. And, and the police department disbanded that unit and it's changed. But uh, L.A. still has a police department that has far too many officer involved shootings, far too many complaints that go unaddressed. Again, it's not the police department of the 1970s, but it's a police department that still has challenges and communities that still distrust. Let me ask you this. I ask this of many who run for uh, the mayor's seat in in big cities across the country. Uh, While there is cachet and power in that seat, it is a headache to be a mayor in any big city. Um, What do you see as your biggest issue, the biggest stumbling blocks you'll have to face if indeed you win? Um, I think just the uh, the bureaucracy, the challenges, um, because the the number one issue, as, as we've been talking about, is the population that is unhoused and the fact that LA has become really unaffordable to so many. And so one of the reasons for that is just the bureaucracy to build anything. So that's what I see as the biggest impediment. It will be facing bureaucracy, we'll be facing old habits, we'll be facing um, you know, individuals and departments that have always done things a certain way and don't particularly want to change. I think that will be the biggest uh, the biggest challenge. And, and surprisingly, I didn't say money uh, because I think that the city and the and the state right now is pretty flush. But we know that the economy goes up and down. So we know that it's great that L.A. has money today, but that doesn't mean a year from now L.A. will. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Um, you mentioned D.C. and that you hadn't gotten tired of of Congress and the House in, in particular where you sat. Um, but there are others that that do, and we understand the pipeline that has to run on many projects um, that often cities need assistance, money, dollars, et cetera, from, from Washington. Mm-hmm. When you look at what you know better than most, um, how optimistic are you uh, with the idea of building your plans and your wants uh, with what you will have to do, the, as you mentioned, the bureaucracy, not just state and local, but federal? Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually extremely optimistic. Uh, one, because we have an administration that actually cares, uh, you know, four years of the Trump administration where they wouldn't even return your phone calls to an administration that has equity at the center of it. And so that makes me very uh, excited. And then working on a local level, because I think a lot of times one of the reasons why the bureaucracy is an impediment is because people are afraid to take risk and they're afraid to take risk because 
In the past, they might have been punished for taking risks. So I, I really think that leadership and setting a new tone and a new standard, um, I, I am hoping, will be liberating for a lot of people. Uh, as I talk to people who work in the bureaucracies, they want to do more. They want to take risk, but you know they don't want to suffer negative consequences if they do. I don't need to tell you this. I mean, you know, uh, President Biden has had some external factors that would have been unforeseen for anyone who was going to sit in that seat that I think has stalled some of the things that he's wanted to do. You were very close to him when running. You were on the short list of potential running mate, et cetera, et cetera. Give me a sense of um, what we should know that perhaps those sitting outside don't know. Uh, from you know what he's facing and how uh, you can help, uh, allies can help, particularly if indeed you win that seat. Because quite frankly, he's going to need assistance. You know, Democrats are facing a, a, a mighty tough road come uh, midterms, and if poll numbers are to be believed, it's going to be a bit bleak. So, give give me a sense of what people should be looking at that maybe they don't see. Well, you know, I mean, and I think this is a problem with Democrats in general. We don't talk enough about what we have actually accomplished. Mm -hmm. And so we we will highlight and moan and groan over bills that haven't been passed or stalled in the Senate. But just think about infrastructure for one minute. The last administration had infrastructure week once a month and never produced one thing. The bill that was passed was a, 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 a huge um, accomplishment for a generation. And the expansion of healthcare, the surviving the pandemic, I mean, all that has happened. Um, I think that the administration needs to tout more, and I think we need to focus on uh, more. But just think also for a minute, now the international crisis is huge. I mean, he's in the middle of trying to prevent World War III. Just think about that for a second, because that, that is the situation internationally. So that, that's what I think. And, and I think that when it comes to helping the administration and helping Democrats in general, and frankly, helping Democrats means protecting our democracy, because I think we have seen that the other party has been taken over by an extremist element, and it's no telling what they will do if they get back in the catbird seat again. Let me ask you in relation to um, what you'd like to see, as we've seen, um, whether it uh, you know was positive or not from the beginning, we are seeing the powers shift to a great degree um, to state governments, to local governments, by means of just the times that we sit in. Um, when you look at the onslaught of uh, the question of, you know, the democracy that we all know and have grown up with, it's to a degree a double-edged sword. Um, you know, give me a sense of how you see that, the balance of giving states and local governments the power they need to to succeed and move forward, yet uh, having that line where, you know, the federal government is as um, we have known it for so long. Well, you know, I think it is a perfect description to say a double-edged sword, because what we have seen before in history is that when one area of the government, especially the federal government, moves in a progressive direction, you have a huge backlash uh, from states and from local entities. And so just think about it. I mean, two years ago, we were having a racial reckoning, Black Lives Matter. People understood that policing had systemic problems. Uh, and the reaction on the local level is to go after school boards, which again is nothing new. I mean, if you think about what happened 
you know, in the 60s and 70s over integration. And what is the issue today? It's not integration. It's critical race theory, which is something that is was made up as a boogeyman. It's a legal theory that's only discussed in law schools. And it's really been generalized to say we only want sanitized versions of U.S. history taught. The only thing that they haven't done is burnt books, <laughs> but they have banned books, you know, uh, books that might make white children feel bad with no thought at all about how kids of color feel about being completely excluded or lied about in, in U.S. history. So I think it just speaks to the fact that we cannot take our eyes off the prize on any level. We have to organize on the local level, the state, as well as the federal level. Do you think that that voters, the, the community, um, understand the importance of making sure that you push back on these things? I mean, I, I think about sometimes uh, when you hear, um, you know, the acronym CRT and, and, and people have bemoaned it, but they don't really think about um, the importance of what that could become if you allow a sanitized version of history to take over. Um, what would you like to see? Um, particularly on local levels, in terms of the pushback against these fights? Well, I mean, what, what is going to have to happen, which again has happened before, is that people are going to have to run for these uh, spots. That's, again, where I think Democrats fall short, uh, because I think we fight these battles, but I don't think we think far enough into the future. So Republicans and even the people who were involved in the January 6th insurrection are busy running for office. I don't think that there has been a pushback amongst Democrats to say, now we have to start running for school boards. That's exactly what the right wing is doing. And they're building up their bench very consciously, very methodically. And I think that we uh, tend to be uh, lifelong firefighters. We run and do whack-a-mole everywhere and don't necessarily think of a long-term deep bench strategy. When we return, the Congresswoman's push to decrease crime and increase voter participation. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape. You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, 
I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. If Congresswoman Bass wins the mayoral race, like many big city mayors, she will face a growing crime rate. It's one of the major issues she's vowed to correct. Today, she released a comprehensive crime prevention plan that she hopes to implement if she's victorious. Let me take you to one of your flagship issues that you're running on, and that is the idea of a a crime prevention plan that was released Mm -hmm. today. Um, Give me a sense of, you know, the overview of what you want this to be. And, um, you know, can this be a model that can be replicated in other cities? People are always looking for that safety plan. Well, I think it, it absolutely can. And I think that it has. My issue is, is that we have over the years developed numerous crime prevention, violence reduction um, programs, and they've been researched, they've been proven to be effective, but as usual, they are never invested in. And they might be funded for a year or two, but in terms of understanding that this always needs to be there in certain communities. And so we are experiencing an increase in crime right now. Some people have difficulty coming to grips with that, but we are. And you obviously have to address crime when it happens. People have to be held accountable, but we tend to stop there. I'm interested in preventing in preventing future crimes. Obviously, I want to stop the crimes that are happening right now, but I want to think in the future and say, how do we take these programs that have been proven and been effective and invest in them while we are suppressing the crime that is happening today? And that's the essence of my public safety plan. And let me just tell you that, um, you know, some uh, aspects of the strategy, and again, none of it is rocket science. It's identifying areas where you do have an increase in criminal activity, reaching out to the communities and involving people in the the, uh, uh, process. There are a number of young people who might have been involved in criminal activity, gang activity specifically. They tend to age out of that activity as they get older. And we have recruited them to be community intervention workers, peace workers, <clears throat> interventionists in the sense that they, their uh, ears are to the ground. They know when there are conflicts that are getting ready to take place or have taken place they intervene and prevent retaliations. Um, We've sent them through training, uh, but again, we've not recognized them are really truly invested in them. And if you get community working in collaboration with the police department, you can prevent crimes. But unfortunately, what happens in our communities is, is that the police come in like warriors. If you go to an affluent community, especially a white community, the police are guardians of that community. Our community, they view like Baghdad. Everybody is suspected of being a criminal. And as long as you have two perspectives as to how you view a community, then that community is naturally going to be in conflict with you, and they're not going to cooperate and help you resolve crimes. So one of the phrases that you have in the plan is prevention is better than cure. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. Many of the ideas that that you have in this are not new. They're not right anything that's so innovative, but they are proven often exactly, and tried and true. 
So if that's the case, though, what can you do to make sure that this does not fall by the wayside, as we've seen in so many cities? I mean, you have in here, and it's it's absolutely right. It's proven in some cities. Sometimes it's just illuminating an area that's dark, exactly. you know, getting community involvement. So how can you make sure that this doesn't go the road that so many of these plans have in the past? Well, I think it's a question of leadership. I mean, this is something I've been committed to for the last three decades. Um, you know, organization that I started three decades ago was involved in pioneering some of these strategies. They were perfected and uh, professionalized, researched and replicated. And, and it's a question of the leadership and making the investment. And so when I look to making that investment, uh, if I have the privilege of, of being mayor, I'm not going to just look to the city budget. I'm going to look to money around the country, federal money, private money, philanthropic money, individual donors, so that I can make a serious long-term investment, not funding for one year, funding for 10 years. Uh, but, but that's what it takes. And unfortunately, our communities are typically not never invested in long term. You know, other communities have problems uh, as well, but they have uh, residents who can afford to pay for resolving their problems. They can pay for a therapist. They can pay for an after school program, you know, uh, and so they don't get into some of the issues that uh, happens in our communities. Let me ask you about um, something that also walks hand in hand with any election. And we're seeing uh, locally more and more over the last, quite frankly, 30, 40 years, um, the the money of politics, the honey of politics, money. Uh, You have been leading in the polls, but of late you have uh, a man who has unlimited resources who's jumped in, uh, Rick Caruso. When you think about what you need to wage, you know, an election uh, or a campaign and a want to win. Um, how do you tell people who simply say that these seats can be bought? You know, how do you fight against that? Because that's a huge problem across the board. Well, it's a, um, a problem. It's a fault, uh, a weakness in our democracy that I do not have personal money. So I have to raise money and I can only raise it at 1500. That's the maximum anybody can contribute. Um, Rick Caruso has, is spending a million dollars a week of his own money and uh, is on every device <laughs> possible, every area of so, social media. So it's, it's a flaw in our, in our system. Um, but it, it means that you have to do the work. You have to organize on a grassroots level and you have to get your message out. Now, there have been very famous people that have spent far more than he has. I mean, if you remember Michael Bloomberg, he spent a billion dollars in 30 days, a billion dollars in 30 days to be the president. And uh, he didn't make it beyond a, a month, a couple of months. What do you think has to be done um, on local levels and on federal levels for Democrats to ignite their constituents. I, I have covered politics for a long time, and you can, you can feel whether or not the base has been ignited. Right, right now, I think it's fair to say, and most who are being honest would say that the Democrats have yet to do that. So yes. um, on a local level for mm-hmm. you and mm-hmm. on a national level as the midterms come, what do you think has to be done? Mm-hmm. Well, we have to get out there. I mean, one of the things that we did uh, a couple of years ago Again, being being good citizens, you know, we we started campaigning completely virtually. 
and I think that that was a problem. I think that the Republicans did not pay attention to the health protocols. We should have gone out, uh, again, adhering to all of the protocols. Um, but I, I don't think that, that we did. The other thing, uh, like we discussed a few minutes ago, I think we're always fretting about what we haven't done and not out there promoting what we have done. But there are a couple of major items that we promised people that we haven't delivered on. One is voting rights. The other one is police reform. And those are really big. And so what I'm hoping, at least on the police reform account, that the administration is going to act. When Senator Booker and I basically said the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act was not going to move forward, the two of us appealed to the administration and said, please issue an executive order and push the envelope as far as you can, you know, with the powers of the administration, because we want to show people that we delivered on two major issues. But we do need to lift up what we have delivered on. Have you been disappointed, quite frankly, in uh, some of what ha- has been seen as a, a, a lack of muscle behind some of the issues that have been of import to African-Americans um, after this president uh, got in mm-hmm. office? Well, my disappointment is with the dysfunction in the Senate. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my disappointment. And, and we've all seen that now. And, you know, I think that the Senate really needs to examine their rules. Um, And I think that if we lose power in the Senate, uh, I have no doubt that Mitch McConnell will come in and blow apart any of the remaining rules that would hold them back. Let me take you to to the Senate and the confirmation hearings that we just saw with Ketanji Brown Jackson. Um, Do you feel confident that the numbers are there, that you're not going to have anyone who would jettison their vote to elsewhere on the Democratic side and that we will ultimately see her ascension to the court? I'm very confident that we will. Uh, just this morning, one Republican agreed to cross over, and that was Susan Collins. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I'm confident is because we don't need their votes. I mean, yes, yes, we want their votes. Yes, it would be nice for her to have a bipartisan confirmation. But mathematically, right. all of the Democrats have said that they're on board and they will vote for her. Um, our vice president can come over and break the tie. So I do believe- Yet we have seen defections on the Democratic side. Uh, yes. You know, not in this instance yet, but, and, but we certainly- no, 100%, 100%. We've seen two Democrats <laughs> throw a wrench in the entire process. Some would say those, if you want to call them that, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but those two Democrats have said that they are on board. Uh, so that that's why I feel I feel confident. I don't think that they would back away at this point. Let me ask you about what many see as the dysfunctions, uh, dysfunction in the halls of mm-hmm. uh, Congress. W- what would you tell those who are skeptical, uh, who who maybe, to your point, don't see the, the wheels that are working, the cogs that are working, but they see those that are bound and can't move and maybe get more media attention than deserve? Right. You know, I mean, I think it is a it, it is a big danger because if people view everything as so dysfunctional, then they don't care any longer. Then there will be even less participation in the democratic process than we have now. I think the floor of involvement is voting. People should be way more involved in voting. But when people get cynical, they won't even do that. And that's that's the danger. I mean, that that's one of the things I worry about in my campaign, for example, is that, you know, we have to make sure that people understand 
What is at stake? What is at risk? And, and I know that the campaign is eventually going to be a negative campaign that, fate, that paints the city as going to hell in a handbasket. Well, if you paint the city as hopeless, then why would anybody care about voting? And that is a way, uh, that, that's a, a subtle psychological way to suppress the vote. We don't worry about voter suppression in California because every registered voter is mailed a ballot. So you don't have to worry about standing in lines or any of those other issues that other states have. But you can suppress the vote by making people think that their vote has no value. And Let me ask you about that, because part of the issue, and you, 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 you raised it as um, being the floor, I often tell people, too many Americans see Election Day as their last day of participation. Exactly. And I tell people it really should be right. your first day of participation right. for That's that right. new run. How do we change that thinking? Because I think that has been cast in stone for many generations now. Well, that is uh, that is a, a very American. That's part of our culture. We are very apolitical. I always talk about this. You know, we can give you any information about a celebrity. You name the celebrity. They know everything <laughs> about the celebrity. Mm-hmm. Have no idea who represents them in, in the city council and does not know the difference between the city council, the state or the uh, the federal government. And it's not because we don't teach civics in high school. Civics is one class. It's a cultural issue. And so I think it's my responsibility as an elected official to find every avenue for people to be involved. And that's one of the things I really would look forward to uh, if I succeed in this race is, is using it as a vehicle in which to get people involved. It's harder to get people involved when you're in Congress because what they do in the community doesn't necessarily impact you know, the federal government. But the mayor's office, everything impacts the individuals. And so I think it's a real opportunity to promote, encourage um, and provide a vehicle from which people can get involved. The old adage about uh, all politics truly at the end of the day being local. I, I ask people to think about the idea of politics as being a much bigger picture. You know, we don't think about mayoral seats in the cities we don't live in as important. Mm-hmm. Um, but that really isn't true at the end of the day. Uh, give me a sense of why someone who lives in San Antonio, uh, mm-hmm. you know, who is of the same political bent as you, who lives in Detroit or Chicago or Miami, should be looking to other races in other cities and why they should either involve themselves um, with any type of support they can for those candidates? Well, actually, uh, as this conversation started, we were talking about violence prevention, and we were talking about the fact that a number of cities are experiencing the same problems. First of all, crime is up almost everywhere. And uh, sometimes people look at liberal cities to say, well, the reason why crime is up there is because you guys don't really enforce the law. You defund the police, yada, yada, yada. But you can look at uh, cities that are, you know, have not reformed anything. They're still in law and order 1980s and crime is up there as well. So if we can address the problem that we have with homelessness and the rise in crime and, and other issues, then it provides a model that could be replicated. For example, I'm very interested in Houston and Houston's ability to address the issue of homelessness. Uh, New York has done some things that are that are innovative. What have they done that maybe Los Angeles can replicate? 
So I think that is is the main reason. Los Angeles is the second largest uh, city in the country, uh, larger than some uh, some countries. Four point four million people is larger than many many states. And so if we're able to address and solve uh, problems, then it can certainly send a signal and a perhaps a roadmap to what other cities can use. Let me ask you before we let you go as a closing thought, give a word to obviously Angelinos, um, but others who may be a bit ho-hum about politics, a bit apathetic about finding their way um, to the ballot box, um, why they should. Well, you know, um, you have problems, you have complaints. If you don't get involved, then there really isn't a way to address that. You essentially are handing it over to somebody you don't even know who will make decisions about your life, who will make decisions about your life, who will set rules, who will set funding about you. And so if you don't participate, you've essentially handed that over to someone else. So when you have complaints, you should think about that. Well, Congresswoman, I thank you for your time. I know it is a, a busy time for you, and I appreciate that you've uh, you know taken a little bit of, of time outside of your calendar and your schedule to talk with us. I appreciate the conversation, and I hope to do it again. The Los Angeles mayoral primary election is June 7th. One Hundred is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.